South Koreans get punked by a computer virus today, Wednesday, March 20th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman, looking for clues after a cyber attack targets banks and TV networks in South Korea. In this case, it appears that a virus got inside, interfered with the operating systems, took control of the machines and made them stop working. And later, a veteran recalls his role during the invasion of Iraq. I crossed the border about 11 o'clock at night. My main job at the time was really just trying to stay on track and make sure I was going in the right direction. You know, I mean, we're out in the open desert, not a lot of landmarks. It's dark. Plus, a young athlete challenges Pakistan's gender barriers with help from dad. He was a bit shy to tell people that I'm a girl. So he said, "Okay, that's my son and his name is Genghis Khan. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. First thing I do when I get to the newsroom in the morning is turn on my computer. Nothing gets done without it. But if you live in Seoul, here's what might have happened this morning when you turned on your computer. Nothing. A cyber attack crashed the computers at three South Korean TV networks and two of the country's leading banks. The South Korean government is investigating what may have been a malicious virus or malware attack. There's speculation that North Korea may have been behind this, but so far no one knows for sure who did it. What is known is that a lot of people in South Korea were affected. Jong Sun-no is a professor of peace studies and political ethics at Yonsei University in Seoul. He says many ATMs in Seoul stopped working after the attack. People cannot take the cash out from the bank and they have no way to put the money in the bank. Uh, That is the trouble. And then we have a major trouble of uh, broadcasting TVs. Uh, They have a whole trouble not being able to use any uh, personal computers, any computer system. So everything should be done by handwriting. They have to, they cannot use uh, videotapes with a computer system. So it's like a, you know, primitive stage of uh, producing uh, TV programs. Um, So as you probably know, the United States and South Korea and other parties have warned about something like this happening. Uh, It's not like there was no warning. Why, why were there not better protections in place, at, especially at two major banks? Right. That's a good question. This uh, bank uh, had been attacked already a year and a half ago. They have to put uh, millions of dollars for protecting system. But still, the whole issue now we are talking about is how much can you uh, spend for this uh, protection system? I, I understand uh, the government put 20 million U.S. dollars uh, for the new system, but people especially say uh, that amount is not enough. Um, I mean, South Korea is an economic powerhouse. What, what's this going to do to South Korea in the next few days if everybody's kind of working in the Stone Age? <laughs> That's a good, good point. Uh, the, I think we can solve it. Uh, no problem. I, I think uh, Korean people are very strong and smart enough to... Uh, protect ourselves and our economy, but uh, for some days and uh, uh, nights and weeks, uh, people feel psychologically extremely frustrated, and the 
uh, trouble uh, the, because of this confrontation. Uh, so people uh, beginning to talk about more advanced uh, structure of confidence and peacemaking uh, kind of a thing between North Korea, USA, and South Korea. Professor, speaking of the Stone Age, the reason we're doing this interview on a phone line is that you don't even want to go on your computer to use Skype. So how has this uh, all affected you personally? I personally have uh, three uh, personal computers at home. Uh, this afternoon, I never use this uh, PC because uh, the, what is going to happen is once I click uh, uh, and open the personal computer, uh, the, the virus destroys the booting system. So once they uh, destroy the booting system, the, my whole files and information that I put in uh, years and years, uh, it will be gone forever. Wow. So I don't want to see that. So I don't touch uh, my personal computer, even though uh, I have to use it, you know, every minute. That's so, what I'm doing. So what are you going to do? When can you reopen your laptop? Uh, the They say they will uh, try to make some uh, new vaccine and be able to hand the vaccine out. In the meantime, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not going to open my PC, but I will use other uh, office computers because that's not mine. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm bad. <laughs> well, any anything to protect yourself, I guess, right? Right, right. Professor Jongson No, thank you very much for speaking with us. Oh, you're welcome. James Lewis is director of the Technology and Public Policy Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He joins us from Washington. Uh, James Lewis, what went through your mind today when you heard about these attacks in South Korea? A little bit of doubt because uh, everything tends to get blamed on North Korea. And while they have been actively pursuing cyber capabilities, uh, so far they're not that good. So are they the leading suspect? Sure. But can we be definite? No way. Who else or what else would you put in uh, the, the list of suspects? Well, this one looks kind of funny. Usually when the North Koreans uh, do something, they include government agencies in the target list. And as far as we know, no government agency suffered in this attack. So it could have been political activists. It could have been hackers just out for fun. We don't know. Maybe they did attack uh, some government military installations, but they might not say. Yeah, and that's one of the things that would help us get a little better sense. You know, uh, usually the North Koreans are pretty noisy whenever they do anything bad and they like to take credit. They do engage in covert action, but very often that's for one of two reasons. It's to get uh, money. They're very good in the uh, crime market or to make a political point. And so the South Koreans just accused them of a large cyber propaganda campaign, uh, something they've been doing for a while. So this is a little out of the norm for them. It could be a, a new step or it could be mistaken identity. And just to clarify, no, nothing is known about who conducted the cyber attack. But James, how do you do this? How do you shut down bank machines? Well, in this case, it looks like they managed to get inside. Uh, the tactic used against U.S. banks in recent months was something called a denial of service attack, where massive amounts of traffic is flooded against the bank's receiving servers, and there's so much traffic that they crash. In this case, it appears that a virus got inside, interfered with the operating systems, took control of the machines and made them stop working. So uh, a more sophisticated attack. One of the things that, that puzzles me about this is 
they said that people showed the uh, Jolly Roger, you know, the old pirate flag. And right. that's, that's like a scene from Independence Day, that old movie. Maybe it is the North Koreans. Maybe they're just getting around to watching Independence Day. Are there clues left behind when something like this happens, uh, kind of like cyber fingerprints that can fill in the blanks on who or why or how? In this case, uh, people say there were things that were left behind. In the past, whoever has done this has been pretty good at avoiding detection. So not the first incident we've seen in South Korea, but in previous incidents, we've been unable to find conclusive evidence that pointed to anyone, particularly the North Koreans. How can South Korea or any country for that matter defend it against this kind of hacking? It would be nice to know who did it, right? Because then we can engage all the normal international processes. But countries really have to start paying attention to their defenses. And one thing that appears to be universally consistent across the world is companies, government agencies, banks, media outlets are really bad at cybersecurity. This is something we have to change. And there's starting to be technologies, methods, patterns that let you make your networks harder to attack. If you don't have them in place, you're asking for something like this South Korean episode. James Lewis, director of the Technology and Public Policy Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You may remember the Italian movie Gomorra. It was set in the bleak world of mob wars in Naples. Now the director of Gomorra has come out with his follow-up. It's called Reality, and it's got its own backstory. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. Reality opens with a high aerial shot of a golden horse-drawn carriage driving through a terracotta landscape. It draws up at a wedding. Out get the bride and groom, surrounded by fat, flushed, happy faces. It, it was a, a, a dark fairy tale, so we wanted to declare since the beginning. That's the movie's director, Matteo Garone. At the center of the wedding reception, dancing in a shiny gray suit, is Luciano, our everyman hero. He's a fishmonger in this small village near Naples. And he's a bit of an entertainer, the funniest guy in the room, the one who'll pull a face or put on a funny voice. So much so that his family pressures him to audition for the reality TV show Big Brother. He does, and he waits for a call that never comes, and along the way descends into paranoia. As Garone said, it's a dark fairy tale. Uh, everybody trying to escape from their daily life to follow dreams that sometimes became nightmare. Luciano is the heart and soul of this film. He's played by Aniello Arena. Speaking by phone from Italy, Arena said he's a bit like Luciano, but only up to a point. On one level, yes, because he's a nice guy and happy. I am too. I like to be happy and joke around, etc. But on a second level, no, I'm not like him in my real life. I would never put my whole life on display. I would also never throw everything away for an illusion, for something that isn't quite there. Now, when I say that Arena's talking by phone from Italy, he's actually talking by phone from a prison in Italy. He's serving a life sentence for murder. He's already been in jail for 20 years. Arena was part of the Naples mob world that the director, Matteo Garone, portrayed in Gomorra. And in Aniello Arena, Garone found an actor who had something in common with the character Luciano. A kind of wide-eyed wonder at the world. A modern world that, in Arena's case, he hasn't seen much of recently. I think this 
brings to his performance something that is unique because you can see in his eyes some the, the surprise you know the light Aniello Arena looks a lot like a young Robert De Niro, and there is a kind of king of comedy meets Fellini thing going on in the movie. Garoni had to ask an Italian judge permission for the actor prisoner to take part, and when things got underway, he gave prison authorities precise production plans. Whenever they want to check control, they, they knew always where we were. Aniello Arena was picked up from prison for each day's filming and dropped off again at night. I get back to jail around 3 or 4 in the morning, but then at 7 in the morning, I'm in a wing with 150 other detainees who are also getting up to go to work. So I'd wake up too, I couldn't fall back asleep. Those were a difficult three months for me, because in the end, I didn't get much sleep. Now, this wasn't the first time Arena had left jail in 20 years. He's long been part of an acclaimed prison theatre company that performs outside the walls too. But Matteo Garoni watched him perform on stage many times in prison. I noticed him for his talent and also for his face. And I wanted him in in Gomorrah. Uh, But at that time, the judge didn't allow it. Like Gomorrah, this film explores the power of the system. Except the system here isn't crime, it's entertainment. Reality shows Luciano dragged under by a spell, unable to escape from his fantasy. In real reality, Aniello Arena is serving his time. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. You can see some great stills from the movie and the trailer too. They're at theworld.org. Ahead on the show, the history of the two-year-old Syrian uprising through the chants of protesters on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. When it comes to our immigration coverage, we try to bring you a mix of voices on the world belonging to a variety of people impacted by this issue. Today, we hear from some immigrant women from Mexico living in Texas who have been victims of domestic abuse. Their husbands and abusers are U.S. citizens or residents. And victims of domestic abuse, even if they are undocumented immigrants, have legal protections. They're covered by the Violence Against Women Act, a law that was recently renewed by Congress and President Obama. Still, despite their rights, many undocumented women along the Mexican border are still afraid to seek help. The world's Jason Margolis visited a shelter in Laredo, Texas, on the banks of the Rio Grande River. Most of the women who come to Casa de Misericordia, or House of Mercy, are undocumented immigrants. For many, it's hard to see a way out of an abusive relationship. Sister Rosemary Welsh is the group's executive director. One of the ways men would keep them in a a domestic violence situation was saying that I am a U.S. citizen, or I am a legal permanent resident, and you call the police, and they will deport you, and I will stay with the kids. So it was a way of terrorizing the women and also keeping them in bondage and keeping them in a, a violent situation. Abused women have been coming to Casa de Misericordia for 15 years, seeking shelter, counseling, and legal assistance. I sat down for coffee and snacks with five women who have received counseling here. 
They chose not to give their names. They shared horrible stories of physical and emotional abuse. This woman says her husband would leave her and her children at home without any food. She was afraid if she left her property, he'd have her deported. She says she survived because her son hunted squirrels and rabbits. Today she's in a new marriage working as a makeup artist and is taking courses at a local college. And she has a visa. A woman by her side also got a visa last year. I feel better. I have the good opportunity for a job, for a study. My life changed 360 grades. She got her freedom. She got her freedom. She got her freedom thanks to the Violence Against Women Act. The act provides funds for the prosecution of violent crimes against women, including those who are undocumented, and helps coordinate community responses. The women I met wanted to highlight their stories of redemption, but not all have been so lucky. Many women fear not just their abusers, but also increased border security. Before September 11th, Border Patrol was largely contained to the actual border. In the bus stop. This woman said Border Patrol agents are now at the bus stops, stores, and restaurants. They're on bicycles and in helicopters. Now you see them everywhere, through the schools, everything. They're everywhere now. This young woman has been living in Texas without papers for 13 years. Her mom sat next to her and spoke in Spanish. The fear of, like, we, we don't do many stuff, uh, we don't go out or we, we don't look for a job because we're scared. There, there's always that fear that, you know, either they're going to caught us or, you know, there's always fear when driving. Many women can't get visas through the Violence Against Women Act. First, there are legal fees. Attorneys fill out affidavits, process papers, and help women navigate the system. Costs add up, and it's hard to find a pro bono lawyer. The victim also has to prove abuse. This can be difficult enough, and Sister Rosemary says heavy border security can keep women from venturing out. So if a woman is raped, sexually assaulted in our community, and wants to do charges against the gentleman, she needs to go to the hospital and do a rape kit. They can't do a rape kit here in in Laredo because we don't have a nurse prepared. So they have to go to a hospital in Harlingen. If they go to the hospital in Harlingen, they can't get back. They can't get back because Border Patrol now sets up checkpoints along major highways. Anxiety about getting caught can also affect their ability to help their children. This woman spoke about her six-year-old. My little child needs treatment in Corpus Christi for kidneys. He don't function the one kidney correct. She was afraid to travel along the highway to the hospital. Eventually, she says she found a doctor who came to Laredo. She says two years on, her child is doing fine. I asked the five women if any of them had ever been stopped by Border Patrol. No. No. None of them had. But they've heard stories about the Obama administration's record number of deportations and worry about being next. Even women who have legal documents get nervous. Sister Rosemary spoke about an elderly woman who violated the rules of her visa. She left Texas to visit family in Mexico. Don't go back, I told her. She never got back. We haven't seen her for five years. She called me every Sunday. She's sick, she's going to die, and none of us are going to see her. These are horror stories. That's a real-life story. The women I met, both those with and without papers, say they just don't cross the river anymore. 
one woman teared up talking about the grandson she's never met in Mexico. Other women spoke about teenage nieces and nephews they'd never met and funerals of parents they'd missed. The women here are angry with politicians in Washington. They say they understand the need for border security and the agents. And while renewing the Violence Against Women Act was a victory for them, they still see a broken immigration system. And many feel like neglected pawns in an unending political game. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Laredo, Texas. A completely different border is the starting point for our GeoQuiz today. Okay, not the usual GeoQuiz music, I know. This tune is from Waziristan, a region of Pakistan that sits on the border with Afghanistan. Tribal ties have always been incredibly strong there, and in the years since 9-11, there's been an ongoing push against the Taliban in this area of Pakistan. In Waziristan, men tend to dominate households, and women are closely guarded. But one young sportswoman, with the help of her father, has tried to break through these gender barriers. A few years ago, she took up a sport that Pakistani men dominated for decades on the world stage. You want big names? Try the two Khans, Jansher and Jahangir. Here's another clue. Really is the critical phase of the match, I think. So instead of a place today, we're asking you to name the game. Back with the answer and more about Waziristan's female sports star later in the program. As you may know, we're following the lives of students at an exceptional high school in an impoverished part of South Africa. The world's Anders Kelto will be bringing us radio stories from time to time, and he's regularly blogging about the school. In his latest post, find out how an experiment involving orange peels earned two students a free trip to China. You can read Anders' blog and watch a video about the school and its students. That's at theworld.org slash schoolyear. And be sure to join the conversation on Twitter. Just use the hashtag schoolyear. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, ahead on the world, a veteran of the invasion of Iraq, on what it was like adjusting to life back home. You know, when you get back, you've been in a very intense experience. You sort of have to recalibrate your brain and your reactions uh, when you get home. For me, it took years to reach that point. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service. 
PRI and WGBH Boston. President Obama and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu are said to have a frosty relationship, but that was not on display today as President Obama began his visit to the Jewish state. From a red carpet arrival ceremony at the airport to a warm joint press conference by Obama and Netanyahu, it was all about showcasing the alliance and feeling the love. President Obama described the U.S.-Israel alliance as unbreakable and eternal. The world's Matthew Bell is in Jerusalem. And Matthew, so far, this trip doesn't seem to be about bold new initiatives in the Middle East. What's really struck you about what is, in fact, front and center today? As you mentioned there, Marco, it is an all-out love fest. Um, It it was an an interesting welcoming ceremony when you had um, Barack Obama coming down the steps of Air Force One after it landed uh, at the airport near Tel Aviv. Huge smile on his face. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu approached him. Um, there was a warm embrace. Again, lots of smiles, uh, lots of lots of easy banter. Um, Barack Obama delivered a, a short speech, but but an important one. I think the White House has been very clear in in saying that uh, the president's number one priority is to speak directly to the American people, and and I think to sort of undo some of the some of the perceived uh, damage that he might have done back with the Cairo speech and in talking about Jewish history, about the Jewish, uh, the presence here in the Holy Land. He mentioned 3,000 years ago, the Jewish people lived here, they tended the land here, they prayed to God here. I mean, it was a speech just directly speaking to the Israelis saying, you have a place here that, that is not a result of fate, it's, it's history. Well, right out of the box, Matthew, the first question at the Leaders' Joint Press Conference today was about Syria and the dangers that chemical weapons uh, may be involved in that conflict. Let's hear what President Obama had to say. Once we establish the facts, uh, I have made clear that the use of chemical weapons is a game changer. Uh, And I won't make an announcement today about uh, next steps because I think we have to gather the facts. But I do think that... uh, Uh, When you start seeing weapons that can cause potential devastation and uh, mass casualties, uh, and you let that genie out of the bottle, uh, then uh, you are looking potentially at even more horrific scenes than we've already seen in Syria. Uh, And the international community uh, has to act on that additional information. So, Matthew Bell in Jerusalem, when Obama and Netanyahu talk about Syria and the possible dangers like the spread of chemical weapons in the region, what is on the table exactly? What interests do they share and where do they diverge? So this is the, the other side of this whole trip, Marco, is you, you've got the, the kind of the optics and, and the politics and the messaging on, on the one hand, and then these hugely important and difficult uh, problems in the region that uh, the American president frankly, is is meeting with the, the most important Middle East ally and, and talking about how to deal with these things. You know, the Syrian, Syria chemical weapons, um, amazingly, is just is just one of the issues. So what to do in Syria? Um, the president, he said, he was very clear and said, we need to have the facts first. I'm going to investigate this carefully. Uh, this, is, this is a serious issue. But when you're talking about uh, intervention in a place like Syria, you need to have the facts first. He was very clear about that. Mm. Matthew, uh, just uh, under half a minute, uh, President Obama received several questions about the prospects for peace with the Palestinians. What did you hear today that you hadn't heard before? 
Uh, nothing terribly new. It was interesting that he said a couple of times, look, I'm going to have more to say about this tomorrow. Uh, on the president's agenda tomorrow, is he's going to go to Ramallah and meet with the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, then he's going to come back to Jerusalem and give sort of his big speech of the trip. Uh, and he kind of hinted he might have something to say about this uh, of significance. But in the meantime, he said, look, it's a priority. I'm going to keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't given up. The world's Matthew Bell speaking with us from Jerusalem on the first day of President Obama's three-day visit to Israel. We'll hear more from you in the coming days. Thanks a lot. Obama and Netanyahu spoke about Syria, as we heard, and we stay on Syria now. Throughout the two-year-old revolution there, people have been taking to the streets to voice their anger at the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Many of these protests have been videotaped and uploaded to YouTube and other sites. So there's now a virtual online history of the Syrian revolution for everyone to see and to hear. Wael Tamimi of the BBC's Arabic service has been listening to the protest chants heard on those videos, and we invited him to tell us about them. Thank you very much. Um, Homs, let's start there. It was said to be the capital of the revolution, where Friday demonstrations against the regime of Bashar al-Assad became a regular feature of the city, I guess before major sections of Homs fell in early 2012 into the crosshairs of the fighting and was basically turned to rubble. Let's listen first to this chant from Homs. Well, what are the people chanting here? Actually, they are chanting, your silence is killing us. This message, if you want, is being sent to the international community, the United States, Europe. When the Syrians saw that NATO forces backed by the United States intervened in Libya to help the Libyan people get rid of al-Qaddafi, the Syrians have been for a long time asking, why not us? Why Mm. you are just seeing us being killed by fighter jets, by missiles, and no one is intervening? So we're talking about the summer and the fall of 2011, correct? Yes, yes. Well, let's hear another one, also from Holmes. Uh, In this next chant, listeners are going to hear their chanting about Syria, or as they say here, Syria. So, Wael, it sounds rather patriotic. What are they chanting here? They are saying it's a Syrian, Syrian revolution for freedom and dignity. They want to tell the other Syrians that it's not a sectarian revolution, not for dividing Syria or Syrians into states and sects. It's a Syrian one. And when did this chant kind of start to emerge in Homs? You can say from the very beginning of the revolution. So musically, I mean, chants aren't really sophisticated. They kind of emerge out of anger almost spontaneously. This chant we're going to hear now is slightly different. It originated from a protest leader and a musician. His name is Ibrahim Kashush. Let's hear this one. So while Tamimi, uh, as I said, this chant was the idea of uh, opposition figure and musician Ibrahim Kashush. Tell us about him. Maybe this is uh, uh, the most famous song of the whole Syrian revolution. In June, July of 2011, after four months of the Syrian revolution, tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of people used to gather in the central square of Hama, the main square. The city of uh, Hama, yeah. Yeah, the city of Hama in the central province of Syria. And uh, we have been told that night of June, a famous guy from Hama, 
Ibrahim Al-Qashush wrote and composed a song which we have just heard called Oh Bashar, you have to leave now. Mm. Many, many thousands of people were singing this song. But what has been a celebrating moment turned to be a tragedy. Because this singer, as we have been told, has been abducted by the regime and his throat was cut. Right. And his body was thrown on the Orentes River. And after his killing, he became the most famous singer of the Syrian revolution. Well, not only the most famous singer and uh, his uh, legacy, this famous chant, uh, but that song inspired Syrian composer Malik Jandali uh, yes. to write a symphony, the Kashush Symphony, based on this chant. Um, That's true. We spoke with him about it last year. We'll have that story at theworld.org. Not all chants come from the protesters, though. Uh, some evolve almost like hip-hop uh, with a cut-and-paste approach. For example, here's one that is anti-Bashar al-Assad. And the protesters are chanting, people want Bashar al-Assad to go. But here's the same chant, uh, Yael, you know this one, in which the pro-Assad camp yes. took the anti-Assad chant and reworked it. Let's hear that. Right, so uh, same chant, different allegiances, yes. that yes. one, they want Bashar to stay. So with that pro-Bashar chant, did they essentially just replace a few words? Yes, when everything started in uh, the old uh, Al-Hamidiyya market in Damascus, the 15th of March, it started with God, Syria, and only freedom. The regime responded to that by changing the word uh, God, Syria, and only Bashar. Well, maybe one area where imitation is not the highest form of flattery. Yeah, yes. Um, the conflict in Syria months ago reached a, a new level of intensity where demonstrations and chanting may not really serve the purpose they once did. Are people still chanting in Syria? Yes, and many, many people outside Syria don't know that the protests are still taking place every Friday. And, and how but, many people are we talking about? I mean, have the numbers gone down and who would actually yeah, take yes. the risk right now? Yes, of course, the numbers went down because of the fighting across the country. But we are talking about thousands of protesters. Mm. Wael Tamimi from the BBC's Arabic service, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Marco. And we have more on chants in our language podcast, The World in Words. It features not just chants of protest, but of joy as well, from protesting Burmese monks to Iraqi soccer fans. That's The World in Words at theworld.org. All right, name a sport where Pakistanis really shine. There's cricket, probably top of the list, and field hockey. But there's one sport where Pakistani men have cleaned up over the years. It's squash, which is the answer to the GeoQuiz today. From the 1950s to the 1990s, Pakistani squash players won 14 men's world titles, as well as dozens of other competitions. But Pakistani women, well, by and large, they aren't allowed to play squash, at least not professionally. But one young woman from the region of Waziristan is challenging that. The world's Clark Boyd has more. When I fight, people listen to me. That's how 22-year-old Maria Tor Pakai responded when the BBC asked her why she got into so many dust-ups with boys growing up. The truth is, she says, she's always rebelled against the strict rules normally imposed on girls in Waziristan. My mom always dressed me up like girls, all like frocks and ponytails. One day I told my parents that I don't like to be like this. I just want to be like my brother and play around freely and uh, hang out with boys, just like a typical tomboy. 
Maria's father, Shamsul, wanted to give her an outlet, so he says he steered her, reluctantly, into sports. I was wary at first because I was never a sportsman myself, and it's never been part of the local culture for women to be involved in sports. My father thought that it would be a really good idea to put me in weightlifting, and that's how I, uh, well, he was a bit shy to tell people that I'm a girl. So he said, okay, that's my son, and his name is Genghis Khan. And so the Pakistani girl, Maria Torpakai, became a boy named after the vicious 12th century Mongol warlord. And it turns out that she was pretty good at weightlifting. But somewhere along the line, she got hooked, like many of her fellow countrymen, on squash. Squash has a really great history in Pakistan, right? So I just like the idea, like how the kids have so much determination diving for the ball. At the same time, my dad was also thinking that he made a wrong decision putting me in weightlifting because I was uh, getting more and more aggressive and looking for fights. But all of a sudden, when I uh, showed my interest in squash, you know, next day he took me to a proper squash academy. The academy was run by the Pakistani Air Force, no girls allowed. And so Maria remained Genghis Khan until the director of the academy asked for a birth certificate. Her secret was out, but so was her talent. Soon she was winning titles at girls' tournaments. Then she came in third in the Junior World Championships. You can easily find YouTube videos of Maria Torpakai competing. Still just a teenager, she turned pro in 2006. The next year, she received an award from the president of Pakistan. But her father Shamsul says his daughter's successes didn't go unnoticed by religious hardliners in Waziristan. A letter was pinned to the windshield of my car. It said, you must stop your daughter from playing squash because it is un-Islamic. Your daughter goes out with men and mingles with men. And this is totally intolerable in our society and you will face dire consequences if you do not stop your daughter from playing squash. There were death threats. The situation got so bad that the Pakistani government provided security for Maria Torpakai. She says the government even posted snipers around the squash court. But she was constantly concerned that a suicide bomber might try to blow themselves up during a match. She worried about all the innocent people that might be hurt. And so she shut herself up in her house. She practiced, if you could call it that, against the walls. And she started sending out emails to squash greats, asking for help. One of Maria's emails found its way to Canadian world champion Jonathan Power, a.k.a. The Magician. I had recently retired from the professional squash circuit and I wanted to open up a center in Toronto. So I just opened up that center and I got this email from this young girl saying where she came from and uh, that she's just trying to pursue her dreams and try to become the best player she can be. And I go, wow, i got to find a way to, to help her out. Power invited Maria to train at his new squash center in Canada. Eventually, Maria's parents let her go. If my daughters want to pursue something good like squash, I will never stop them, her father told the BBC. Maria's making up for four years of lost training time. Recently, her story was featured on HBO's Real Sports. Get up there, snap it. Wrong foot. Get that right foot. There you go. Jonathan Power says that with training, Maria could very soon be one of the top squash players around. For the world, this is Clark Boyd. I want you to attack that ball. Good. Maria Torpakai has her own great story about breaking stereotypes. If you have your own personal narrative about breaking out or getting boxed in by gender roles... We want to hear it. Leave your story at theworld.org or tweet with the hashtag WorldGender.
This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This week, we've been recalling the start of the war in Iraq 10 years ago. President Obama was pretty low-key about it. He issued a statement yesterday, mainly paying tribute to those Americans who served in Iraq, as well as those who died there. White House spokesman Jay Carney echoed that theme when asked to assess the situation in Iraq now. Uh, The situation in Iraq continues to be a challenge, but there is an elected government. There is a growing economy, and uh, there is certainly the potential and prospect for Iraq to have a, a much better future than its past, and that is due to, in significant measure, the sacrifice and service of Americans. Brandon Friedman served in Iraq. He was an infantry officer with the Army's 101st Airborne Division when the war started in 2003. And after coming home, he wrote a combat memoir, The War I Always Wanted. On this anniversary, Friedman's memories of the invasion are still pretty clear. On this date, 10 years ago, we had moved up to the border and we were lined up with a number of convoys, the 101st Airborne Division, and we were preparing to invade. At that time, the Iraqi military started firing al-Samud missiles at us. We could hear them thud in the distance. We listened as the Tomahawk missiles flew over us the night that the shooting actually started. I crossed the border about 11 o'clock at night. My main job at the time was really just trying to stay on track and make sure I was going in the right direction. You know, I mean, we're out in the open desert, not a lot of landmarks. It's dark. I was very focused on getting us where we needed to go. How long were you deployed there? Um, I was there for a total of eight months. When you came home, uh, you wrote that you couldn't shut up. I mean, that you felt the need to tell your story again and again. All all these things happen in combat, and it's sort of like you need a place to put them. And I didn't feel like I had a place to put them. And so uh, for me, it was all about telling the stories and and relating what had happened so that people would understand, you know, what combat was like and what the Iraq experience was like. I had no intention of of ever writing a book about it, but I talked to a a mentor who had mentored me in writing when I was in college. He encouraged me to write a couple of war stories. So I took him up on the offer and said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll write a few stories out. So I did. And it allows you to sort of order what happened in your mind as you put these stories down on paper. To an extent, it sort of lessens the intensity. Was there one story in particular that you found yourself kept telling again and again that kind of crystallized what the war meant to you? A lot of times people want to hear action stories because they have it in their mind what they think the war was was like for the most part. And in those situations, I can tell the stories of what it was like shooting or what it was like having bombs fall right near you. Mm. And then other times I can relate what the boredom was like and how We went weeks on end without really anything happening. Your memoir, The War I Always Wanted, there's a passage early on uh, in the book uh, where you talk about fear. I'd like you to read that if you could. Sure. So before the war, I'd always been afraid of things like failing a test in school or that I'd be late. I was afraid that people at a party would think that I looked stupid or, or that I'd say something stupid. I was afraid that when I left the bar, I'd find my car window broken and all my CDs gone. But fear in war isn't like that. This is the type of fear that only comes when you know your life could end at any moment and you'd never see it coming. This is fear in its purest form, and it ends up staying with you too. Because even when the war is over for you, and you're back at home with your family and you no longer fall asleep to the sound of cascading gunfire, that's when you'll notice just how uncomfortable you are when there's seemingly nothing out there in the darkness of which to be afraid. But in the beginning, 
before all this happened, I didn't know any of this. Yeah, a very powerful statement about how that fear stays with you. And I bet that a a lot of vets can uh, relate to that. How has that fear permeated you to this day? Well, you know, when you get back, you've been in a very intense experience. You sort of have to recalibrate your brain and your reactions uh, when you get home. For me, it took years to reach that point. Every step of the way for me allowed me to progress a little more, whether it was going back to school, getting my first civilian job after the military, getting involved in advocacy for veterans, you know, and and also getting married and having a kid. All those things, I, I think, sort of allowed me to move on from the experience and look back on it as instead of the thing that happened, look mm. at it more as a thing that happened. I mean, with that distance, and as you say, you were single then, uh, now you're married uh, with a son. How do you feel today about this war and, and the role it played in your life? I think it's unfortunate that the Iraq War happened. You know, there were some pretty perfect things that, that took place over the course of a decade there. But I'll never forget the guys I serve with. A lot of people can't um, wrap their minds around that idea that that I can look back on it as, as some of the best experiences I had and some of the worst at the same time. It really shaped who I am to this day. What, what will you do to commemorate today? Will you try and stay off the idea that it's a commemoration? For the longest time, um, you know, the names and the dates, these are things that I swore to myself I would never forget when I tried to think about it recently. The, the names and the dates often don't come to me as easily as they used to. You know, I have to think about it or, or go look it up when something happened. When that first happens, it's sort of jarring to me that, you know, I feel guilty. Oh, my God, how could I have forgotten something that's so important? But at the same time, I it's not necessarily a bad thing that those events are not taking up so much space in my mental hard drive. They're not, I'm not always conscious of them anymore. For me, I think it's a sign that I've moved on, and I think probably a lot of veterans would feel the same way. You mentioned that you've been working with other vets. Are you working with them on writing as a way to work through, you know, their own kind of dark memories of, of that period? Yeah, yeah, I, I have, actually. You know, I, I really I wish more veterans would write. I think, um, you know, the thing is you don't have to be a great writer. It's beneficial one either way. It allows you to sort of take a step back and, and some somehow see the war in a different light than maybe you had seen it before you wrote. Army veteran Brandon Friedman is the author of The War I Always Wanted. Thanks very much for speaking with us, Brandon. Thanks for having me on, Marco. We'll hear more tomorrow about the healing power of writing from veteran Ron Caps. He served for more than 25 years in the Army and the Foreign Service. In one decade, he witnessed conflicts in Rwanda and Kosovo, Iraq and Darfur. Coming home, the only way he found to make sense of the trauma he witnessed was by writing. I knew that writing was something I needed to do to understand what was happening. I wanted to remember what I'd seen, what had happened, what my role in it was. And I decided that what I wanted to do was to use what I had learned as a veteran, as a working writer, to help others the same way. Hear how Ron's work has helped spark a new generation of writers who are vets tomorrow on The World. And we leave you today with a song by the very popular Iraqi musician Kazem el-Sahir. Imagine his songs playing from Baghdad storefronts. Maybe even a few U.S. troops heard them as they rolled into the city ten years ago. 
From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman, tweeting at Marco Werman. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.